The Can He Do That podcast is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Are you looking to learn a thing or two about getting your finances in order, saving, and investing? Then check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and The Washington Post Brand Studio. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. A little while ago, Washington Post reporter Juliet Eilprin took a trip to the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History. It was, it was really amazing. I, I'm always thrilled to go behind the scenes to see things like that. Juliet is the Post's senior national affairs correspondent and a former White House bureau chief. So she's like a veteran political reporter. But on that day, she was at the Museum of Natural History to check out something that feels very far from the world of politics, though it's something that President Trump very much wants to see eliminated. She was there to see the muskrats. It was in a climate-controlled room where they have these vaults and you can pull, they pulled out various different specimens. These were little dead muskrats, preserved by naturalists from way back in the early 1900s. And they're part of the collection of the U.S. Biological Survey Unit, this very old, little-known federal bureau that's housed inside the Smithsonian. And the more I dug into it, I found out, you know, there's the connection to Teddy Roosevelt because he was friends with, you know, its founding director. The Biological Survey Unit is a kind of library for all these specimens of animals that have been collected over the last century or so. And the whole thing is managed by just six people on a relatively modest annual budget. It is $1.6 million a year. And it's one of many federal agencies, programs, bureaus, and subdivisions that are on President Trump's budgetary chopping block. I'm Martine Powers, and this is Can He Do That?, a podcast about the powers and limitations of the American presidency. And this week, we're talking about how President Trump is trying to reshape the government through the budget and appropriations process. Because Trump wants to massively reduce the size of the federal workforce. He's looking at entitlement programs, and he's looking at bureaus that affect all kinds of things, like the arts and international affairs, transportation, the environment, and the sciences. And he's looking at these little projects that few people have ever heard of, like the Biological Survey Unit. People in those federal offices see this as an existential threat. And they're wondering, What's going to happen to their jobs and to their research when Trump starts cutting? And what will America lose if these offices are axed? But it turns out that Trump's ability to make these large-scale cuts is much more complicated than what you see in the headlines. So we wanted to ask the question, how much can the president actually do to reshape the size and central functions of the federal government? And does he have the power to drain the swamp by eliminating unnecessary federal workers, cutting funding to projects like the Biological Survey Unit, and getting rid of the muskrats? We're going to get back to the muskrats. But before we do that, we need to zoom out and talk about Trump's bigger budget plans. We've been hearing a lot about President Trump threatening to eliminate, you know, certain divisions within agencies or federal programs. You know, we've, we've been hearing this since the, the beginning of his administration. What's happening now that makes this more real? So what's interesting is Congress is finally getting back to the normal budgeting process, which shouldn't seem like a radical thing, but it is. Essentially, until this point, and even right now as we speak, 
we have kind of been in a holding pattern where Congress has kept funding with very few exceptions at exactly the same level it's been for a couple of years since before President Trump took office. What we are anticipating is that Congress is going to get back to kind of the normal process starting later this month with the overarching spending bill. And that will set in motion a process under which Trump and his appointees will have more flexibility in adjusting the levels of federal spending across the board. And the president has made it clear that one of his big priorities is to scale down or, like he said during the campaign, to cut so much your head will spin. And he just thinks that, for example, not only was America better in the 1960s and 50s in many ways, but that if we could get federal government back down to the size it was decades ago, we all would be better off. So there's a special window where the president and Congress can decide to shuffle around money between agencies and kind of rethink how the government is structured. And the Trump administration has given Congress a blueprint for what they want to see supported, stuff like defense and a border wall, and what they want to see axed. It's everything from funding for the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars to eliminating the Rural Business Cooperative Service, which provides kind of advice to rural Americans. The National Wildlife Refuge Fund and the Global Climate Change Initiative. Um, You know, things like the Chemical Safety Board, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the Legal Services Corporation, which provides legal aid to low-income Americans. The National Endowment for the Arts and the National Endowment for the Humanities. There are plenty of things which they've slated for elimination. What is always kind of the test for a reporter like myself is to look at what are they actually shutting down. See, we're back to the muskrats. To be clear, the biological survey unit is not just muskrats. It's almost one million bird, reptile, and mammal specimens from across North America, These specimens continue to be used for research on how species have developed and evolved, and also how biological life has been affected by things like changes in climate and habitat and contaminant levels. Juliet wrote a whole story about this federal collection of archived animals, because it's at the top of the list of things that she describes as a bureaucratic bloodletting. The program is a good example of what people call a zombie agency. And that's not just because it's a bureau of people who collect and maintain dead animals. The term refers to some of these agencies that have been around for what feels like a zillion years. And people aren't quite sure what they do or what kind of tangible benefits they bring. They sort of just continue to exist. And those are the kinds of programs that fiscal conservatives think are worth cutting. The argument that, for example, folks who want to eliminate this small unit would say is they would say, well, you know, surely there might be a way for either the private sector to pick up the slack and help with funding to manage these collections or the Smithsonian, which already has roughly 18 staffers who work on this, they could they could simply, again, do more with less. This is a theme of the Trump administration's proposed cuts. He's not always talking about completely shuttering these programs. Like, they're not just going to haul out the muskrat collection on the mall and set the whole thing on fire. 
but they want to pass off some programs and responsibilities to the private sector or to states that they think are better equipped to manage them. The flip side that folks would say, on the other hand, is that you really, first of all, wouldn't save money by doing this because, frankly, the Smithsonian gets roughly 60 percent of its funding from the federal government, and you essentially would be just moving pots of money around. And more broadly, they would say, this collection is invaluable. We're still figuring out ways, whether it's through DNA analysis or other means, to to tap into, say, some of the collection, that you, you're you not going to know what you might have lost if you suddenly mothball it and reduce access to it. And so they would argue that even though this is not seen as cutting-edge science, it's really it's something worth preserving. Clearly, that's not how the Trump administration sees it. Trump's been talking about making this radical downsizing practically since day one of his administration. So, what's the holdup? I think um, that there's fundamental confusion among both the general public, but even people who work in the government, about how the federal budget process works. I went over to the Heritage Foundation to talk to Romina Bacha, an expert on the U.S. economy and federal fiscal policy. And she explained that there's this fundamental check that exists on the power of the U.S. president, one that an astonishing number of Americans completely miss. So I think it has to do with a belief that the president has a lot more power over the budget and appropriations than he actually does. And so people... Uh, tend to get very scared when the president's budget comes out, but they pay much less attention to the congressional budgets, even though those are much more important. And in the United States, it's the president's budget that's really the least relevant of all of the budgets. The president's budget is the least relevant of all budgets. Congress is really at the core of the federal budget process. Uh, Congress uh, controls the power of the purse. And so the president's budget primarily is a visionary document that lays out the president's agenda. But very rarely do the proposals in the president's budget become law. They only would become law if Congress took the proposals in the president's budget and then included them in their own budget resolution. When uh, the president's budget has gotten a vote in Congress, um, which they can choose to bring it to the floor or not, um, usually even President Obama's budgets, they don't get uh, any votes from either party. This is one of the powers that Congress um, has really seized from the executive. The power of the purse is really the one power that Congress pretty much controls entirely. And so the president's budget is more advisory. So President Trump has laid out this list of, of some you know, subdivisions and departments or, or agencies that he thinks should be retired. What are the chances that, 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 that Congress is going to go along with him on some of those? This year, uh, pretty much zero. <laughs> and the same was true for last year. So many people got concerned when they, when they heard that one of their favorite agencies, the National Endowment for the Arts or the National Endowment for the Humanities, might be eliminated in the cre- president's budget. But what they didn't realize is that Congress didn't really support those proposals. So the president's request in those areas really went nowhere. Well, I find that really interesting because I think that there is a sense that there should be fewer federal workers, there should be fewer agencies. Um, and I think that's something that you hear both from the president, but also from Republican lawmakers um, in Congress. And so why, why aren't they going along with him on this? 
That's a good question. Many of the programs that were on the president's chopping block have a lot of support in Congress. For example, the National, Endow- National Endowment for the Arts, they sent 40% of their funding out to regional art centers in every single state. So they have a stronghold and therefore congressional support in every single state for those reasons. And many other programs act in that way as well. Uh, Pentagon programs tend to be located in just about every state. Um, And so on the ground, people support these programs. And while in the abstract, they may support the idea of cutting government spending and maybe even working towards balancing the budget someday, when you actually talk about what it would take, what programs would be affected, that's when people get very wary. They don't really want to talk about cutting specific programs. They just like the idea in the abstract. And that's another reason why. And then all day long, Congress is basically inundated with visits by special interest groups, and they all are promoting funding increases for this or that program. And the lawmakers, they like to say yes. They want to please their constituents because they want them to say yes to them again in the next election. So the incentives are all towards allowing for more spending and not cutting anything. And that's what we're seeing this year in particular. Um, And this year, not only aren't they going to cut anything, but they're actually going to increase funding tremendously across the board. Do you see uh, hypocrisy there that that you have Republican lawmakers kind of talking about this bread and butter issue of we need to think about cutting back, but then not following along with President Trump when they have an opportunity to do that? I Absolutely. There's a lot of hypocrisy, and I think we saw a tremendous amount of that, especially in the past few weeks over this massive budget deal. Um, During the Obama administration, there were many fiscal conservatives in the Republican Party that complained how much the president was spending, how high the debt was was growing. It's actually kind of funny when they complain how much the president is spending, because ultimately the president only has power to spend what Congress appropriates for him to spend. Uh, But leaving that aside... We didn't really hear much of that at all in the last budget deal. And the truth is, this recent budget deal that uh, President Trump cut um, with um, Chuck Schumer and, um, and others in Congress, it is um, more than twice the size of the previous budget deals that were forged under the Obama administration combined. So we're actually seeing a massive spending increase under a government that is solely controlled um, by Republicans. They hold the House and the Senate and the executive branch, and yet um, we we are witnessing one of the largest increases in federal spending in history, and certainly since the Great Recession. Um, so there's a lot of hypocrisy there, and I think uh, Senator Rand Paul drew a lot of attention to that um, in, in, in the recent weeks over this debate over the budget deal. And what he said was, when uh, there's a, a Democrat in the White House, uh, there are, you have fiscally conservative Republicans, but when and there's a Republican in the White House. There's no fiscal conservatives left anywhere in Congress. Harsh words from Rand Paul. But he's pretty accurate. Over the last 20 years, the size and scope of the federal government has grown aggressively under Democrats and Republicans. 
Well, certainly there's no question that the government has expanded it. In fact, the Post did an analysis at the end of last year where it found that the overall size of the federal workforce had shrunk a little during President Trump's first year. And the last time federal employee had dropped during a president's first year was under President Clinton. So it gives you a sense. What's interesting is we've seen, for example, President George W. Bush came in talking about shrinking the size of government, and in fact, he vastly expanded it in part in response to the September 11th attacks in 2001. We created an entirely new agency, the Department of Homeland Security, and then certainly under Obama, the government grew, and it grew faster than, say, the overall economy did during that time. And again, obviously, in that case, Obama administration officials who passed a massive spending uh, stimulus bill it, when the country was in a recession made the argument that the government needed to be spending more. And really, the last president to make a significant dent in the size of the federal workforce was Clinton back in the early 1990s. Sometimes it's just a question of odd bedfellows. When President Clinton came in because he had campaigned on being a different style of Democrat at that time, and he was talking about eliminating unnecessary regulations and paperwork and things like that, he and his team were able to make common cause with some Republicans to, for example, institute some of these measures. And so it often just takes a certain amount of alignment. My sense from talking to folks who are around under the Clinton administration, again, it's not that that was without tensions, but when Clinton came in and said he wanted to change the way government was working, he framed it as someone who was sympathetic to the overall goals of the federal government and to many federal employees. And now, again, both sides have been pretty explicit. In other words, when I talk to cabinet members and top Trump officials, there are many times they have questioned kind of the efficiency of federal workers, have talked about, you know, to what extent they're being sabotaged by people who've worked for them. Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke publicly said that there's something like a 30 percent of his own workforce that aren't, in his words, loyal to the flag, meaning to himself. So it's a different conversation that you have when, for example, the head of an organization has already questioned something. But it also, again, to me, speaks to the fact that they really are taking a serious look at what needs to be changed. So so when it comes to what's happening now, do you think that there's an argument to be made that, like, this is a really healthy part of the political process to sort of look critically at everything that exists and money that we're, that we're spending as taxpayers and to, you know, decide that, that some things aren't worth the money and, and get rid of them. There's no question that this is a moment where we could look with fresh eyes at how the government's operating and proceed from there. I think the real interesting question is, is there enough trust, for example, between political appointees and career officials that they could talk between each other and say, honestly, this is what's working, this is what's not, and each side would hear each other. And I think one of the interesting questions that we will be facing in the months ahead is because Republicans have control of both Congress and the White House, if they can keep everyone together, they could do this on their own. And that may be why, again, I think that there's more of a prospect for both deregulatory action and shrinking the federal government now just because Republicans 
control all the cards. But President Trump makes it sound very easy to do this, right? That like this is the kind of thing where you just sort of look at a list and you start crossing out names of programs and then snap your fingers and it's done. Do, do you feel like are you expecting that there that this will be more complicated than than maybe he paints it out to be? I think I can say with high confidence that this will be more complicated than the president has outlined. Obviously, he's traditionally worked for a privately owned company where he had broad discretion to change the way things operate. And we've seen time and time again that there are lawmakers who are not going to sign off on all of these issues. And and certainly they will be hearing every time something comes up and kind of a, a more radical proposal for budget cutting comes out of the White House, there's inevitably some constituency that mobilizes against it. And not all of those constituencies will be effective in preserving what's targeted, but certainly some of them will be. And because many of those people are folks who vote and have the ear of their individual representative or senator. And so and so all of that makes it more complicated than it than it might see or that the president might be indicating. Those complications mean that it's difficult to know what programs within the federal government are truly facing the prospects of real elimination. So the fate of the muskrat collection and the researchers at the Biological Survey Unit lies in the hands of Congress. Then the real question is, who's going to try to save them? Do these advocates, the ornithologists and herpetologists and ichthyologists that are posting on Facebook and writing letters to the editor of Science Magazine, do they have enough power to sway Congress? And can some lowly dead muskrats from Farmington, New Mexico, end up having friends in some very high places? Or is it time for this century-old zombie agency to finally go? Thanks for listening to Can He Do That? from The Washington Post. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or find us anywhere else that you listen. Check out previous episodes at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. Can He Do That is produced by Carol Alderman with design help from Kat Rudell-Brooks, logo art from Lauren Boglio, and original music by Ted Muldoon. I'm the host, Martine Powers, filling in for Allison Michaels while she's out on maternity leave. Special thanks to Juliet Eilprin and Romina Bacha for help with this episode. Hi, I'm Mike Rosenwald, a reporter here at The Washington Post. I'm hosting a new daily podcast called Retropod. It's a show about the past rediscovered. Every weekday morning, we'll explore some of history's most dramatic moments. I'll introduce you to colorful characters from our past, forgotten heroes, overlooked villains, dreamers, explorers, world changers. Check it out on your Amazon Echo, Google Home, or your favorite podcast player. For instructions on how to listen, visit WashingtonPost.com slash Retropod. 
The Washington 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 Post. Hi, I'm Jimmy Kimmel, and I'm here with Jeff Edgers to do his podcast, Edge of Fame. It's a collaboration between WBUR and The Washington Post. I've always wanted to be involved in a collaboration between WBUR and The Washington Post ever since I was a baby. Edge of Fame, before, behind, and beyond the spotlight. Subscribe to Edge of Fame wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by ZipRecruiter, offering technology to help you find candidates that match your job qualifications.